Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, thanks for uh, joining me. It was so great seeing you down in Miami a few weeks ago. I feel the same way about you. It was uh, just lovely to be in person with everyone and see a bunch of friends and uh, colleagues that I haven't seen in years. So it was wonderful. Very energizing. I, I just wish you and I had a little bit more time. I felt like we were uh, just running by each other for four straight <laughs> days. Uh, but it was so good. True. I know we were able to briefly catch up. So so I did really enjoy that. Um, so look, as it turns out, one of the hottest topics at exchange was actually this FINRA notice that was issued in March. Uh, formally, this is FINRA notice 22-08. And this has to do with, quote unquote, complex ETFs and mutual funds. And, and I'll let you get into this. But in a nutshell, this is a proposal that would require brokerages to test investors before allowing them to access certain products. Now, of course, FINRA is the regulatory body overseeing brokerages. And from my perspective, I, I could be wrong. I think their intention is to try and help, uh, and I'm going to use air quotes here, protect retail investors from things like leverage and inverse ETFs. But as I know you know, the concern down at the conference was, well, what exactly constitutes a complex ETF, right? Is it anything besides plain vanilla Vanguard and, and iShares ETFs. What exactly does, does complex mean? And then, of course, assuming you can even define that, how, how do you then go about administering a fair test to investors? And, and should brokerages even be in the business of administering a test to investors? Uh, so, look, I, I know a lot has been made about how this could negatively impact ETF issuers, right? It's effectively gating products, making distribution more difficult than it already is. But I know that you have some specific concerns from an investor standpoint. So let, let's start there and feel free to add my uh, crude description of this proposal. You're, you're absolutely the regulatory expert here. But why does this concern you from an investor standpoint? Well, sure. I mean, you, you got the broad strokes of it, right? So uh, taking a close look at the proposal, FINRA is asking for comments along two main tracks, right? So all the attention is on the complex product side, but there's also, uh, a, they're, they're seeking comment about options trading and whether there should be more uh, regulation and, and gating around the option, the practice of options trading by retail investors too. That's also concerning. So in this uh, proposal they or guidance they, they set out for FINRA members, they say, you know, you have to um, remember your responsibilities as a FINRA member to uh, you know, protect investors and so on. It's all, all very, you know, sounds very good, right? But as part of this proposal, they're asking for comment about roughly three dozen fairly leading questions about how members, like you said, should confirm. Uh, define products as complex, whether FINRA should be implementing special regulations around their use, should there be more supervision, and so on. And like I said, same thing with options trading, should there be more rules around you know, who can use these and so on. So the complicating factor, as you said, there's no standard definition for complex product. Right now, it's sort of like obscenity, right? You're, you're supposed to know it when you see it. But that's not a very clear working definition. So FINRA wants to define complex products. And the way they've done that 
the net their proposal is casting is extending so far and wide that pretty much every ETF that isn't a pure market beta indexed product would potentially fall into this net. So there's a lot of uh, attention being given to leveraged and inverse products, but things like commodities futures-based products would fall into this net. ETNs, defined outcome, global real estate ETFs, all of those could potentially fall into the definition of complex products. And it's not just ETFs either. Structured notes, mutual funds, other products that use these things, they could potentially be complex products as well. So the the I think the key here is that FINRA is asking uh, if in, investors should have to prove to FINRA that they understand the risks before investing. So it's not just uh, that retail investors should be told, consult your financial advisor or read the prospectus. No, they now have to prove to FINRA that they understand the risks in investing in these products. And the form in which that proof takes is still up in the air, but it could, like you say, uh, your brokerage firm could now potentially require an annual test for you to unlock the ability to invest in leveraged products, or you might have to have some uh, high net worth AUM threshold in your account to be able to access these products. And I think this is where the proposal goes too far, right? Finner's jurisdiction isn't over retail investors. So why should retail investors be forced to get special approval from FINRA members to do what they want with their own money? You know, why should I as a investor, have to take a test to prove that I understand these risks. Um, and it would be, if this proposal were to come to fruition, it would be the first time in my memory that a regulator ever told members of the public, hey, you know, the security that's being published, uh, that's being traded on a public securities exchange, yeah, actually, that's off limits to you. So sorry. Like, I don't think that's Okay, and then just one last final point about it. I don't think FINRA has even laid out enough of an argument that there's something broken in the way that the process currently works, right? So if you look at leveraged and inverse products, most brokerage platforms like TD Ameritrade and E-Trade and whatever, they already have disclosures on their platforms about these products that investors are required to check the little box and say they understand, they're aware of the risks. Those risks are also outlaid in the prospectus. They're on ETF websites. You go to any leveraged and inverse uh, product issuer, it's like right there in big, bold letters. These are the risks. And now investors are also going to have to take a test to prove or get special clearance uh, to prove that they understand the risks. I, I mean, at some point, this just becomes burdensome on the investor for the sake of being burdensome. And I think this is a solution in search of a problem. Let, let me ask you this. Um, is disclosure enough? And, and I'm not sure if you listen to it, but I think you know I recorded this podcast live at Exchange in Miami, and I was joined by uh, your colleagues, Dave Nottig and Todd Rosenbluth. And one of the questions that I asked them was, well, w- what should be the right answer here? And, and, and Laura, I mean, I, I'd say I, I think back on the conversations you and I have had over the past several years, we, we've discussed uh, – 
the, the complexity or the growing complexity of ETFs many times. And, and I think you and I both have some concerns around retail investors getting their hands on products they don't understand. I'm not saying that they should be gated. I'm just saying I think we both have concerns about whether or not those products may be misused. Um, and, you know, again, I just don't think there's any question ETF complexity has increased over the past several years. So, so I guess my question is, besides disclosure, should anything else be done to better protect retail investors? Well, so there's a lot of answers to that question, or rather, uh, rather a lot of different uh, tracks and points to make. So first of all, we do exist in a disclosure-based regime, right? So disclosure up to this point has been the name of the game, and this would essentially say that's not enough anymore. And then secondly, I, I do feel that if there's a uh, ruling to be made here, it probably ought to come from the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and not FINRA, uh, regarding the investment worthiness of these particular products. I don't think that's really FINRA's job to be saying that these should not be uh, available uh, or, or they're not, um, you know, safe or, or so on. But Wait, stepping back philosophically, like where does this end, right? Where, if 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 Fenra starts making these decisions, you know, should regulators start protecting retail investors from microcap stocks or SPACs or hedge funds or crypto assets, right? Regardless of whether investing in any of these potential or any of these um, market segments is a wise decision or a silly one. That's the investor's decision to make. It's not Finner's job to act as my financial advisor. And you also brought up some of the implementation issues around implementing a test, like who's going to proctor the exam and how is it going to be adjudicated and you know what happens if you fail and how do you make sure it doesn't systemically discriminate against people and all, all of these things. But when I'm looking at this proposal, I can't help but wonder who it's designed to benefit, Right. Who wins if suddenly all retail investors have to jump through flaming hoops to access a significant amount of products that are on the market? And the answer to that is FINRA members, right? <laughs> so when you gate off certain classes of investments, you're forcing retail investors to go back to those middlemen, those intermediaries that they've been slowly moving away from over the past 10 to 15 years. And it just forcing retail investors to use an advisor is not how you support that business. It's not going to work. You can't, when it comes to self-directed investing, this is toothpaste you can't shove back into the tube. Your point on where does this end, I think, is a really good one. And I don't want to <laughs> sound extreme here, but, you know, theoretically, you could make the argument, well, look, um, we know in looking at the Spiva scorecard, uh, or, or the Morningstar Active Passive Barometer that active managers as a whole underperform uh, on average, right? And there's no persistency to any managers who do outperform. We, we know if you look at the data that low-cost funds tend to be better than high-cost funds. So to your point, where is it in? Are you going to start throwing up flags for any product that's actively managed or, or has a higher fee? Uh, you can see how th this is a real slippery slope. Uh, Laura, I do want to touch on some other topics. So let me just ask you this before we move on. Wh where does this entire thing stand w with a FINRA proposal? Like, like what happens next? 
Sure. So the the FINRA proposal is open for comment until May 9th. That's when the period closes. And I think, you know, if you're used to how the SEC does comment periods, you might be a little surprised, right? The SEC has a something like a, what is it, a 270 day window and then a deliberation period and then it takes some time for the rule to come past. Not really the case with FINRA. FINRA has the discretion to move a lot more quickly. They could pass a rule as early as May 10th, right? So there's a certain amount of urgency here <laughs> to get your comments in. And if you're going to get a comment in, you, you got to do it. There's already something like, a, the last I checked uh, last night, it was 461 comments already. Um, once the comment period closes, the rule change's got to be approved by FINRA. It's going to be filed with the SEC, and and then it could go effective. So, just feels like there's going to be a ton of backlash to this if something is pushed through. Well, uh, yeah, hopefully, that's yeah. not the case. Um, okay, another uh, regulatory item I wanted to ask you about, and y- you know, when you think about this, this could actually impact how ETFs get into the hands of investors, just like with this FINRA proposal. So, the uh, Financial Times reported last week that the SEC has launched a probe into ETF revenue sharing practices. Uh, So these are payments ETF issuers make to brokers or other uh, third-party intermediaries to, um, shall we say, entice them to offer certain ETFs to their end investors. I I guess I'll just ask you, I mean, are you surprised by this probe or do you think it's long overdue? What what, what did you make of this? I do think it's a little overdue. This is an issue that's been around for a long time. I remember our friend Crystal Kim uh, did this excellent deep dive on the subject way back in 2019. It's still just as relevant. And I think the SEC has been focusing more on mutual fund sharing, uh, revenue sharing up to this point. Now they're kind of turning their attention towards ETFs. So the background is this. ETF sponsors have to pay platforms like Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch or whoever to have their funds appear on the platforms. This is called revenue sharing. It's long been standard practice in mutual funds. And to an extent, it sort of makes sense in mutual funds because there's different share classes and different fee structures for the share classes and, and so on. So you can sort of embed these fees within that to, to what you're charging to investors. ETFs only ever charge one fee, though, right? So, But they're still forced to pay these revenue sharing payments. And so it, it, it's... It, it sets up this sort of pay-to-play atmosphere where uh, ETFs are from issuers who also run the brokerages, right, like Schwab or J.P. Morgan or Fidelity or whatever, they don't have to worry about revenue sharing agreements because they you know, don't have to pay for their own platforms. But smaller players in the space, newer players, do have to pay to get their, their ETFs on the platforms. They have to go through all these hoops. They don't often have the extra cash on hand if you're just starting out. To, to pay that cover charge. So I think that brings us to where we are today. The SEC is looking for ETF companies uh, to provide them information about the payments that they're making to brokers, to other platforms, and so on. They, they want the receipts, basically. So the SEC wants to understand how these platforms are making decisions to list or not list, how to list an ETF versus the mutual funds, and so on and so forth. And they want to clearly have any conflicts of interest disclosed for the end investor. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really what it all boils down to, right? Uh, Are there conflicts Mm -hmm. of interest and are those conflicts properly disclosed? I thought it was interesting. The Financial Times noted how uh, Morgan Stanley disclosed it would charge revenue sharing fees to sponsors of active ETFs, but not passive ones. So then clearly, 
they would have a financial incentive to recommend active ETFs over passive e- ETFs. I thought that was an interesting example. Oh, and it's not just that. I, I mean, it, it isn't just that they are uh, levying fees on active ETFs. They are specifically making cheaper, excuse me, more expensive active ETFs pay more than cheaper active ETFs. So that means that now Morgan Stanley has an incentive to push these uh, higher price tag active ETFs on their platform over the passive ones because they're going to make more money in doing so. So mm. do, you, do you have any sense as to how prevalent this is? Like before nearly every brokerage went to commission free ETFs, like for all ETFs, I thought that was really the most visible place where you would see ETF issuers paying to be on these uh, special commission-free ETF lists. And, and that could prove valuable, right? Because you had a lot of investors and advisors that were selecting their ETFs based solely on those those commission-free lists. Now, of course, that's all pretty much gone away. So I, I'm just curious, where exactly is this stuff still happening? Is it primarily wirehouses? And, and, and just how prevalent do you think it is? Oh, I think it's still very much alive and well. <laughs> the, uh, the You can usually find documentation about which revenue sharing payments an ETF sponsor is making in their financial documents, you know, annual reports and stuff, they, they disclose that. You can also find out who they're paying it to in some cases. So we know that places like Morgan Stanley, LPL, UBS, they're all doing this revenue sharing arrangement. And I I think, you know, stepping back to Morgan's, the the example you gave about Morgan Stanley, I think maybe this transparency, uh, you know, maybe, how do I want to say it? I wonder if part of the reason that we're seeing so many active ETFs and so much conversation around active ETFs lately and asset flow into active ETFs it's it's of course it's due to the ETF rule being passed and making it easier for active managers to come to the space and so on but i'm wondering if some of that amplified is amplified by the fact that that's where platforms are going to make the most money in revenue sharing agreements right so if if morgan stanley's agreement is commonplace then yeah, a lot of these platforms are going to make more money from higher price tag active ETFs than they would from low cost beta products. Yeah. And I think earlier you hit on one of my concerns, and I'm not going to get on a soapbox here. We we don't have time. But you know, the problem is that obviously, larger ETF issuers have much more financial wherewithal. So they can pay to have their products on these various platforms. Theoretically, that puts smaller ETF issuers at a disadvantage. And uh, you know, just like we talked about with the FINRA proposal, ultimately that can limit ETF options for investors. So I, I think that's certainly one of the concerns. Um, okay, Laura, as I always do, um, I'm going to ask you a, a question that has an hour-long answer, and I'm going to give you two minutes mm-hmm. to, to answer it. But I, I have to just ask you about these Barclay ETNs. You, you know, ETNs are always one of our favorite topics. And last week they suspended creations on, I, I think, just about all of their their ETNs, like 30 ETNs. That included some fairly popular ones. ones yeah. yeah, like like DJP, right? The uh, iPath Bloomberg Commodity ETN. Now, of course, this comes less than a month after they suspended creations on their uh, their, their VIX short-term futures ETN, VXX, uh, their crude oil ETN, oil. And I, I've got to tell you, I'm starting to wonder if we should just, like, put a fork in ETNs altogether. It just seems like it's one thing after another uh, with, with these. Do you have any quick thoughts on this situation? I mean, I, I, I just wonder if it's time to kill off ETNs, you know, permanently. <laughs> okay, so a couple of things real quick. And and FINRA might agree with you, right? Because they've, they've put ETNs in the complex products bucket. But um, so a couple of things real quick. One, uh 
Yeah, like I feel to an extent that we are watching when we see this going on with uh, Barclays and and they're shuttering this ETN and now they're shuttering all their iPath ETNs and, and so on. It's a little bit like that scene from the old Adams Family movie where Wednesday Adams is on stage dueling her brother and then she's got this long, slow death rattle. Stage blood is going everywhere. She takes like 10 minutes to die. I kind of feel like that's what we're ha- what's happening with the Barclays uh, ETN department right now. Um, but, you know, it, it's actually, uh, it seems to be something that's localized just for the Barclays, uh, for now, um, the Barclays uh, p- products. So the micro sectors and, and the Credit Suisse ones, they seem to be doing just humming along as normal. So I... I think it kind of steps back to or stems back to what we're always saying about ETNs, that it's very much the longevity and the health of these products is tied to the the health and the um, the it's just tied to the issuer. Right. So it's it's very issuer centric uh, risk that you've got here that you know, your bank could just decide not to support the product or it could shut down overnight like Lehman Brothers did and then you don't have any support for your ETNs. So I think, you know, when you're with ETFs, the idea of issuer risk isn't necessarily top of mind. With ETNs, it really does have to be. You have to make sure that you kind of trust the the issuing, um, the, the issuer in this case. And I'm not sure that it's, always obvious whether, because Barclays is a huge bank, right? There's no reason to expect that they wouldn't support these products. So it's kind of a messy thing. It's so messy right now. And I don't think it's going to get any less messy anytime soon. Yeah. I just feel like, you know, ETN seem like they're a small piece of some of these larger banks and they just put them into the corner. I don't feel like, uh, you know, the investor is always put first with, with these. It's not a core business. Uh, for them. And, and I, I don't know, just, uh, it feels like the, um, again, just the end investor isn't the one who's put front and center. It's really the whims of the bank and, and what they're doing. But in any event, Laura, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, always enjoy our conversations. Thank you for joining it's me. Fun. It's so much fun. We're going to have to rename this ETF soapbox instead of ETF prime. So. That's hey, that's me every week. <laughs> That was uh, having me on. Thank you. That was Laura Krieger, editor in chief of ETF Trends and ETF Database.